How about that sound? How about that about sweet, that sweet new theme song? How about that mellow, yet intense yes. sound palette? Kind of an, it's right. kind of an eight, an eighties driving, uh, you know, bittersweet. But I don't know. It's just gorgeous, and it is called Sans Bouchon. Mm-hmm. Track one it, from the new Ben Wise album, In the Stars Tonight. Available on all streaming platforms. Also, you can get it on beautiful blue vinyl. Um, Which I have thank you, Ben Wise. Yes, yes, thank you, you Ben thank Wise. Thank you so much for we, your support. We love you. We love this music. And uh, I think it just gave us a little uh, just breath of fresh air into our intro. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, welcome to Homophilia, listener. Yes, uh, we are How you doing, Matt? digging into the archives this week. Uh, yes, we are. You know, a special episode that we just wanted to bring back to the people. Uh-huh. Um, we had the opportunity to interview Scotty Bowers, uh, who is the subject of the documentary Scotty and the Secret uh, History of Hollywood, um, mm-hmm. and also the director Matt Turnauer. And this was not right. long before Scotty passed. We were uh, it was it was truly an honor to yeah to talk uh- to him. What an interesting interview it was. And he yeah. came in the room, fully 93 years old, very flirty. And I thought about it. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, Scotty is also the inspiration for uh, Dylan McDermott's uh, character in the new Ryan Murphy uh, Netflix series, Hollywood. So yes, we figured this would be a good time to, yet. Uh, to unleash it. Mm. Are you watching? Mm-hmm. Thoughts? Um, it's... it's definitely seven episodes long and um it's uh it's ryan murphy okay great and that's just um, speaking, the zoom the zoom delay that 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 that, that, that uh, hesitation on dave's part nothing yeah else. of course of course yeah no that's just technology um speaking of uh television period pieces um my uh my hair is now uh, in in isolation and without access to a barber, I am fully um, an extra from uh, Mrs. America. I'm uh, I'm a middle aged gal at a consciousness raising session at Betty Friedan's house, and there's just nothing I can do about it. Once again, I'm glad this is not a visual medium. Dave, god damn it! With you talking shit about that head of hair. To me, no, I'm not, to the people, I'm not when I can it. see what you're working with is abusive. I'm not talking to shit. all of us who will never, will never be blessed genetically with what you have. I'm, I'm not talking shit about it. It's just I look at it and I'm like, oh, hey, Joanne, what's going on? Um, it's yeah, it's 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 getting ridi- it's getting ridiculous. But you know, I, the the awkward length is happening in isolation, so I could be it could be worse. Strongly disagree. I'm no, thank you. Frankly attracted to Joanne and I uh, have oh. to, you know, ask some questions. Just look within okay. about that. All right. Uh, well, thank you. I'm about to take her out for a run. It's going to get all in my face. Uh, how are you living in your in uh, in isolation, Matt? How, how are you? How are your spirits? Uh, spirits are still good. I'm still pretty steady globally. Obviously, mm-hmm. terrifying the world. Sure. Very worried about on um, the homestead. All things considered, it is still. Nice. Uh, we have Michael's birthday. We, you know, t- just tried to do as much kind of special stuff um, with him. We're watching the show Devs on FX. Oh, who is that? Good. Uh, very up my alley. 
Um, I don't have a hot take on it, but that's something we're enjoying. I'm trying to think what else I'm reading. I'm reading a bunch of a couple Eve Babbitt's books. Do you know Eve Babbitt's? Um, So that's that's like fun. Wait, what? Spoiler alert. Oh yeah. Full on Trump supporter. What? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sorry to spoil the Eve Babbitt's moment. I know that she, um, yeah. She, yeah, read, I just, but she aged into uh, Trumpiness. I had no idea. And, uh, you know, honestly, great excuse for me to stop trying to read a book and just pick, pick back up that copy of um, uh-huh. Harper's Bazaar. That's my bad. <laughs> wow. I'm so upset about that. Yeah. Um, sorry. Sorry. What, what else is uh, keeping you company these days? Um, uh, I'm reading normal people. Um, to get that done before I dive into the series. Um, and it's great. Oh yeah. Great. It, I, I picked it up when I was in Ireland last year and I was of course surrounded by writers in Ireland last year. So like everyone was like praising it, but also filled with repressed rage over the amount of attention that Sally Rooney was getting. You know what I mean? There was just, Mm -hmm. there was like appreciation mixed with fury and envy. Um, and I understand why it, sure. it is. A, it's a really beautifully written book and it's, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. So is that, and you, but you're saving the show. You said you're not, you've not saving the show until I'm through with the book, which should be today yep. or tomorrow. It's a quick read. Um, uh, as I said, got through, got through Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I have notes. Okay. Um, I'll save them for, uh, for when you've gone through it. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, you, won't be bored. Great. That's that. honestly all I'm asking for these days. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, and then that's kind of it. Um, I, I got to, um, this was pretty fun. And, and by the way, uh, Sirius XM is free on, in, on streaming, like the, the <gasps> smartphone app, the, yes. um, your connected speakers, all that kind of thing. So through the month of May, Sirius XM is free. And the other day I got to do, um, uh, my friend Jim Shearer has a show on volume and, uh, and so he did like a, a parody of the last dance, uh, Michael Jordan documentary, uh, about want to be a VJ and it was super fun. And normally I'm not wild about like talking at length about that yeah, whole yeah. thing, but I'll do it with Jim Shearer and it ended up being really fun and it's, uh, it is free. So listen to that. Uh, yeah. Band. I saw this. I saw you. your, your post about this. Okay. So I can still, fi- if I can ever figure out serious yeah. that I can still hear it. Yeah. Great. Uh, search for the Jim Shearer show. And I'm, uh, I guess it was Monday, of, Monday or Tuesday of this week. Uh, so that was fun. Um, oh, also I did. Um, if you feel like following along, you know, those like 30 day song challenges on Instagram. Vaguely. Yes. Yeah. I started doing one of those and it was like sort of fun. And then it's like, they really peter out after a couple of weeks, like day 15 is like, Pick a song that is nice and that, that's it. Like it's just they mm-hmm. run out of prompts almost immediately. So I was like, I'm going to do one of my own. So I did one of my own. If you feel like doing it, it's on my Instagram at Dave Holmes. Screenshot it. Do it. Um, uh, my first category was um, songs that you have leaned on during the lockdown. A lot of people sent in really good ones. So I made a big playlist of all of them uh, on Spotify. So follow me on Spotify. Oh, I love that. For music that will get you through. 
And in the I'm meantime, looking at myself in the Zoom screen, and Elaine needs to go for a run. So let's get uh, let's get into the episode. Elaine is gorgeous. Let's get into the episode. Here is our uh, chat with Scotty Bowers and Matt Turnhour. We are back. Here we go. With the director huh. and the star, the subject of Scotty in the secret history of Hollywood. We Hello, don't Scotty do, Bowers. We don't do many, uh, many duos in here, by you the do. way. It's a very special occasion. It wow. is. There's so many microphones. You're set up for this. Yeah. 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 It's like, Scotty and Matt, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thank you. You are running all over town uh, promoting your, your film yeah. still, right? Well, it's, it's doing quite well all over. Great. All over the country. Great. You know, not only all over town, uh, we've been to New York, San Francisco with Scotty. So we've. Palm we've, Springs the other Palm day. Palm Springs the other day. Oh, so yeah, nice. it's, a, it's a nationwide sensation. Oh my God. People must be coming out with their stories in Palm Springs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> coming out is the word. Sure. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. We've had, um, if I may just dive in, Please the most eat. incredible things. Uh, a gentleman in Palm Springs, uh, made himself known and then told a story that I doubt even you remembered. It was probably from the 50s at the Easton's Gym on Beverly, which still exists. Oh, it was yes. one of the That's oldest right. gyms in the city. And he said that Scotty went up to him in the 50s there and said to this guy, now probably in his 70s, do you know Anthony Perkins? And the guy said no. And then Scotty said to him, uh, you're just his type. Here's his phone number. Give him a call. And he said within 24 hours, he was in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel with Anthony Perkins. And that was insight into how you operated that I never really understood that version of it. The gas station, sure. which is we're getting ahead of ourselves, of course. Yeah. Scotty had a gas station, and we'll, we could, you guys can set that up. Sure. The gas station was a different story that I totally get, but that – on the fly at Easton's gym, right. set up with a super, a mega super movie star <laughs> yeah. is pretty intriguing. <laughs> Just sexual altruism, yeah, is what that was. That's what his middle name is. I think. Actually, That's, the gas station was very near. It was up on Van Ness and Hollywood Boulevard. That's oh exactly wow! Right. Walking distance, we're on hollowed ground essentially. Yeah. So, um, yeah, paint the picture of us of, of the gas station. The gas station was a very neat. Nice little gas station with a big lot, and it was Richfield then. Mm-hmm. Now they're called Arco. It was Richfield, R-I-C-H-F-I-E-L-D, and the actual address was 5777 Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, yeah. We're right and there's a fire station there now with, with an address a number two off, you know. Yeah. And this was <clears throat> quite near where Paramount was. Warner Brothers was um, very near where we're sitting right now. The old studios were all around here uh, before the freeway was built. And uh, it made geographical sense for this gas station, uh, which was Scotty's place of of work as a a gas station attendant, to be a covert brothel where Scotty was the ringmaster. Because all of the big players, even little players from the studios, Mm -hmm. on their way west usually from – the Hollywood area back to their, say, West Hollywood or Beverly Hills or Brentwood houses could stop there for a few dollars worth of gas and also some other services. Right. And the thing about it, never went up and never went down. All the years I was at the gas station, gas was 25 cents a gallon. 
period. Wow. Yeah. Not that up one week, down the other week. It remained, and half the people that came in bought a dollar's worth of gas. But how about the other price list? Hmm? The other price list. <laughs> oh, the other price the list. Trick, the trick price Well, list. that started very easily. When World War II ended, everyone was dumped out of the service at the same time. You'd go to work for 5 or $10 a day because you couldn't get a job. Yeah. And so a lot of guys out of the Marine Corps hang, were hanging around a gas station, didn't have a dime. And that's when I began to fix them up. Some guy I knew that was gay came in and said, hey, I'd like to take him to dinner. I said, if you take him to dinner, you have drinks, you have dinner, you put out money, and nothing's going to happen, which you want to happen. So why not just give him 20 bucks and get with him and forget the dinner? And I started that ball rolling right then and there, and I was fixing up more than 20 guys and girls a night out of that gas station, seven nights a week. So before that period started, it all started with you being picked up yourself when you were an attendant, right? By, was, that, was it Walter Charles? Pigeon? Walter, oh, Walter Pigeon, Pigeon, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Can you tell that story? Well, Walter Pigeon, actually, I was at the gas station, and I was filling in for a guy that was out looking for another job, and he just got back from Walter Pigeon pulled in. That's why I was able to go with him. Otherwise, if I was working, I couldn't go with him. Mm-hmm. I was able to go with him because the guy filled in for just came back. He'd been gone three or four hours, and Walter Pigeon pulled in, and I was off with him and went out to Benedict Canyon to Jock Potts' house. Jock Potts? Jock Potts, who was a hat designer for the studio back in those days. Jock Potts. On Benedict Canyon, across from Harold Lloyd's place. And this was kind of a swimming pool deal, right? Yeah. It was in the daytime, a warm, hot day, or nice, warm day, yeah. And you got into the car knowing what you're signing up for oh, yeah. fully. Oh, yeah. I, I, I always knew what I was signing up for. Yeah. Don't, don't forget, when I was 10, 11 years old in Chicago, I'm tricking out of tricking every night. <sighs> Yeah, that is a, <laughs> a shocker in the I'm, film. I'm down least. in the loop until after midnight tricking people when I was 10, 11 years old for the people that dug young kids. Oh, my God. I, I, I've i heard you, and I mean, you, you touched on this in the film, Matt, that you guys have very different views on that <laughs> period of time in Scotty's life. Well, the film is Cinema Verite, so Scotty's 95 now. Um, so he's telling his story. Uh, we started filming on his 90th birthday, and we shot for two years. So in his 91st and 92nd years, uh, he's telling me his story on camera. And um, in one of the first interviews, this uh, story came up, which was um, him as a very young guy with a, like a shine business and a paper route and selling you know pencils and things that little boys did during the Great Depression in mm. Chicago. But he was also uh, selling himself. And I, you hear me ask him on, I think, three occasions in the film, like, you had no problem with that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is remarkable to hear someone talk about this and also not consider themselves to be a victim, yeah. which you've just heard uh, is Scotty's position on the topic. This comes up in the film and is dealt with in the film, but yeah. it's dealt with uh, because the film is about Scotty and it's about Scotty telling his story uh, from his perspective. It's an incredibly uh, bracing narrative to hear. And as I've already said, um, his position about his own um, sexuality and his own um, um, odyssey as a, as a 
as a person and a sexual human being is uh, something we don't hear a lot today, which is one reason I think that Dr. Kinsey, the sexologist, uh, the great sexologist, the first one really uh, before Masters and Johnson, the Masters of Sex, uh, studied Scotty because his point of view on sex and sexuality was so uh, full spectrum. Yeah, I'm the one that got Dr. Kinsey on the ball because they had instituted sex research in Bloomington, Indiana University, Pomeroy, Gibhart, Martin, and Kinsey. Mm -hmm. And when I first met him, he looked me up. He said, his best interviews are prisoners. I said, sure, the warden lets them off all day. For you to talk to them, they're going to bullshit you all day long. He said, I never thought of that, but it is absolutely true. I said, you better think of it because that's exactly what it is. I mean, if you get prisoners and put them in the library all day to talk to you, they're going to stay there and talk to you mostly all day. So you tell me they're your best interviews. Certainly they are under the, under those circumstances, and they're no good at all. <laughs> I was intrigued, though, when I asked him, um, so how did you meet Kinsey? And he said emphatically, Kinsey sought me out. Kinsey yeah. looked for me. You know, the movie Kinsey, the one that Liam Neeson stars in, directed by Bill Condon, uh, that happens in that movie. You see that. It's based on some biographies of Kinsey. And he would look for these uh, sexual unicorns. Uh, in, in, in There's one in the film I remember depicted who seems very degenerate and a little creepy, but he's had sex with something like, you know, 35,000 people and <laughs> wrote down every sexual encounter. You didn't keep such good records for good, for good reason, particular reason even. Uh, but he was known as uh, a voracious uh, sex worker, what we call, yeah. we'll call them today. And uh, Kinsey wanted to know about what he was up to. And he also introduced Kinsey around Hollywood. And back in those days, oddly enough, you couldn't make a movie. How can you make a movie with what? An eight millimeter? Who's going uh, to develop it for you? I had a friend from Eastman Kodak, Rochester, New York, who came and took care of all that for us. You mean blue movies? You mean right. porno, yeah, porno like, homemade home porno? Videos. No, I made movies so when Dr. Kinsey spoke to people, he could back it up with a good movie. Sure. On an wow. eight millimeter movie. That was definitely part of the Kinsey research was filming, and Scotty just told you how a lot of that happened. Yeah. Yeah. And were you given a number on the Kinsey scale? Uh, you know, the scale is sort of, is it from zero, zero to six? Well, for a long time, I was number one on the Kinsey scale. <laughs> yeah. So one being the being closer to straight? Uh, no. One being closer to whatever it happens to be at that time. Oh, gotcha. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Um, well, I I want to keep talking about the film, of course, but um, let's talk about you guys for a moment. And um, just because this is in the spirit of the show, what are some things outside the film that you are loving pop culture wise right now? A, a, a movie or a TV show or something that you've you've seen that really struck you recently? You're the Scotty's the least avid movie moviegoer I've ever heard of mm. uh, because uh, he just was sleeping with the movie stars. Why do you need to go right, see the exactly. movies? Uh, exactly. yeah. How many movies have you seen in your whole life? Well, you? not many because I was busy all the time. I didn't <laughs> sure. have time to go to movies. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. He's on the go. So, so I would say in the last 25 years, I've seen three or four movies. Wow. What was the last one? Do you remember the last one? Jesus Christ. Gone well, it was his wind. own movie. Gone it was Scotty. Well, sure. <laughs> Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. But, yeah, Gone with the Wind, maybe. 
Yeah. Who I think you had sex with like 10 people in the cast. Of yeah. The there you go. Oh. Well, yeah. There was a, the director of Gone with the Wind was. Um, well, Cucor was. Uh, Cucor was the original director and Vic Fleming took his place. There's a story about yeah. that that yeah. you might be interested oh, in. Oh, yeah. Knowing, involving Clark Gable. You know, and Clark George Gable Cukor. wouldn't let George Cukor do it. He said he wouldn't do it if George Cukor was directing. So that dumped George Cukor out of it. But do you, there's a why rumor why. Remember the rumor? This well, is in Hollywood. The rumor why? Yeah. Because Clark Gable hustled around before he really got, and he didn't. You know, sometimes once people make it, they made it on their own. No one helped them at all, and everyone in show business has had help along the way, yeah. someplace. That's right. true, of one kind I mean, or another. Yeah. Oh dear, um, <laughs> I um, I can plug another podcast. Oh, oh um, sure. I mean, that might be sacrilege. No, I it's fine. Know. No, we're secure. But I've heard there are other podcasts. Have you? I, don't, I certainly don't listen this to them. This one's good. I can tell already. Uh, I like it. Good. Um, no, but I just did uh, the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. Oh, wow. And we talked about Scotty and L.A. and uh, Hollywood. And one thing I was amazed about with this podcast is – Brett Ellis, the author of American Psycho, most famously, or Less Than Zero, and all the uh, many other novels, um, has become a real cultural commentator. And the pop culture references he pulls in, and the amount of movies he sees, no matter what you think of him, is so dizzying. Yeah, I, I felt so uh, inadequate culturally next to him. I mean, he really has seen everything, and he goes to the. I was very impressed. He went to the theater to see this on the big screen. He doesn't watch links or DVDs, but he was pulling in references that I. I mean, half of them had to be cut out because I was just blank when he was asking me about um, yeah. the latest uh, Marvel. Scandal with Marvel Comics. I just, mm, sure. I just had no answer. Uh, but we've been very consumed with promoting this film. Sure, of and, course. And uh, it's um, if your culture vultures. I think one thing that distinguishes this film that I'm proud of is that it's a theatrical documentary, and it's been the summer of the theatrical documentary. Surprisingly, mm -hmm. in the world of streaming and Netflix and everyone, but we've been. We've been hitting it at movie theaters, which is actually um, a surprise and I think a good blow for, as it were, every word you say in this presence of Scotty has a double entendre. Of course. But it was a good uh, – it's it's an amazing cultural phenomenon to see um, theatrical docs uh, resurgent. Well, it's the only place to see recognizable human behavior anymore, especially in the summertime at a yeah, movie theater. Right. Right? But getting back to the – People in show business. Yes. Everyone has had a helping hand. Sure. No one made it on their own, but after they're very successful, they always did it. They made it on their own completely. Sure. <laughs> e example. Oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> We've been censored. <laughs> no, we don't. I mean, how censored do you want to be? Oh, we don't need please. to be censored. Oh, please. Yeah. Okay. We'll let the legal department take care of that. Oh, yeah. really? Scotty, okay. spill it. All right. Well, I mean, there is a Clint Eastwood story that's okay. not in the I movie. Like well, I would like to hear that hey, story. Clint Eastwood is like five years younger than me. Uh -huh. He went in the Army two, a year and a half after the war was over. He and his wife, Maggie, went up and lived in Monterey, and he was at Fort Ord up there. And I told Arthur Lubin, who was at Universal Studio, an old queen there, about Clint. And then I introduced him to Clint, and all of a sudden Clint was an actor, right? Uh -huh. Now, Clint would never admit that he— did anything on the side to make where he made it, but that's how he made it. Wow. You heard it here first, folks. Juicy. How did he get a start? 
That's I how he got his start. When, after introducing him to Arthur Lubin, Arthur put him in a picture, boom, and he was on his way. Uh-huh. By the way, I went right to IMDb and looked up the guy who uh, put it, who Clint Eastwood put in, was it Josie Wales? Or, Georgie uh, Fargo. Yeah, was, yeah. Uh, one of the gas station uh, Georgie boys. Fargo was a little friend of mine from Chicago. A little friend of And he came out, and all of a sudden, Clint put him to work. Uh-huh. Interesting. <laughs> Have okay. you and Clint crossed paths uh, recently, in recent years? Hmm? When's the last time you saw Clint? Well, I haven't seen Clint personally in years. No. He's lost his mind. He's a yeah. Republican and, and, asshole. And, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, Since that thing with the chair, yeah. we really, I, is, I lost me with the chair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, you know, I found myself interested by the relationship among the people at the gas station. Yeah. Was, uh, was everyone strictly there to do business? Was, I mean, was there any, did, was there any like hooking up or romances among the uh, young guys uh, who worked a, at the a station? A lot of both guys and girls. Yeah. Uh, who ended up moving in, living with, and going into business with each other. I really? mean, going into business with the person I introduced them to. Uh-huh. And they were at the gas station because they didn't have a dime. Right. I mean, a dime. And uh, I was fixing up and making everything a $20 trick. Uh-huh. And $20 was quite a bit in those days. Yeah. And this is the 40s, 50s. Yeah, yeah it's, it's 40, 45, late 45, uh-huh. after what was over, and, and through the 50s. All the 50s. Of course, if you adjust for inflation, $20 was yeah. a lot of money back then. Yeah. Sure. But you never really raised your prices, curiously. No, it remained 20 and you got you got a lot for if, 20 If gas was a quarter <laughs> a gallon, then that's a lot of money. And it remained that. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It never varied or changed 25 cents a gallon. What I'm curious about, though, is, is if any of these men, especially after the war, who yeah. came to the gas station, did they... Or was there such a thing as self-identifying as gay? Or were uh, they? It, was it strictly no, transactional? No, they, they were basically straight. Yeah. But they would go with someone that was gay just right. to make the $20. Right. Because they didn't have anything. Yeah. Okay. And, and for people who did identify, there was kind of no other way to socialize, was there? Or no. was there? That was a great way to socialize. Oh, sure. But, but you, couldn't, you couldn't just... Date somebody. No. Right. But if you hung around the gas station, you'd meet people, know people, have fun. Yeah. And it was just fun to be there. Yeah. Because every night there was up to 30 people hanging around the gas station. Yeah. You're on to an interesting point that was news to me. I wasn't around then. What? Well, the— you were talking about a world in the 40s and 50s when if you wanted to – if you're a guy who wanted to date another guy, it wasn't so easy really. You couldn't do it openly. Right. You couldn't go find someone so easily. And if you went to a gay bar, you might be arrested quite frankly because the vice squad, which was an LAPD division that – shook down uh, gay people, basically. Uh, it was an extortion ring run and by the police. That, and that vice squad was red hot. Yeah. So yeah. They, they created a dangerous environment. Workplaces were not hospitable. So let's say you had to go to a, you wanted to go to a gay bar. That was one of the few places to meet someone. You had to worry about running into someone who you maybe worked with, and that could ruin your career or your life. So yeah. we're talking about a very different time in a very different context. So... And on top of it, the studio system with morals clauses and the studio contracts made it impossible for gay actors to live an authentic life. So there are many levels of uh, 
of restriction in the city. And Scotty created a more open and safe environment for people that really had to live their lives walking on eggshells in sure. many senses. A good way to put it in those days, remember, there were no cell phones. There was no TV. You lived in a room by yourself with nothing but the walls to look at. Yeah. So the number one thing people wanted was company, yeah. someone to talk to. Right. That was number one. You know, another thing that we should talk about that is one of the, I guess, splashier elements of the film is just the sheer volume of of names and celebrities who are mentioned in some context, whether they came through the gas station or, you know, you just sort of knew them socially. Yeah, dealt with them at home. Yeah. We're talking Clark Gable, Catherine Hepburn, Lana Turner... Yeah. Uh, uh, George Cukor, yeah, um, Spencer Tracy, Spencer Tracy, Tracy and Catherine yeah, Hepburn. Spencer yeah. Tracy is one that that really struck me because it seemed like there was, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like there was a real connection there for you with Catherine Hepburn, Spencer, oh, with me, with, yeah, yeah, because Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy had nothing to do with each other at all. All they did was argue, him, her putting him down all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jesus, how much time I spent with him. I'd go at 5 o'clock, 4 o'clock, stayed at 1, 2 in the morning sitting at the kitchen table with him, him slowly drinking into a drunken stupor. <laughs> and then what? And then we'd go, I'd help him into bed, and he would... Just after lying down, he would get up and have to piss and either piss in the closet or piss back on me in bed, you know, because he was so loaded. Yeah. And never, and then he would, I would stay all night with him and he would, uh, the next morning would say, gee, you were so nice to stay. Never mention anything that happened at all. He didn't know, didn't remember. He didn't remember. Then never said a word about that. And he would, he would not suck on your cock. He'd chew on it. Really, ooh, you know, ooh. whoa, <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. no, wow, God, yeah, the noise didn't make it any better, Scott. Yeah, oh wow, that bit was not in the film. That's no. a no. That, that is detail that exclusive, is exclusive to us. Um, so for him, it was mostly about just strictly companionship, just uh, a, definitely an ear. drinking, getting uh-huh. drunk, and having companionship. Without a doubt, that was it. Yeah, and that's the way it was with a lot of people who didn't have. As I said, a cell phone, a TV. Right. TV didn't come in for years after that. Yeah. Right. You touched on all the names. Uh, There are many names in the film, but there are probably 200, 300 names mentioned who are (laughs) some famous, some formerly famous, some obscure uh, that aren't in the film. Yeah. uh, Because it's only 90 plus minutes. Uh, And, but the story's more than just about the megastars 
of the period, yeah. personified by Cary Grant and Heppard and Tracy and Vivian Lee. Right. Uh, not everyone's gay, by the way. It's all forms of sex and sexuality. But so much of Scotty's story is about the average Joe who maybe worked in the prop department or maybe someone who worked at Bullock's Wilshire, you know, uh, selling perfume. He really uh, touched so many lives uh, and mostly in terms of uh, same sexuality. But it didn't have to be a movie star story. Uh, yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, the film turns on Scotty's uh, alternate history of Hollywood, a counter-narrative of Hollywood. Um, you do see another strata of a Hollywood existence in the film in the narrative about his relationship with an actor named Beach Dickerson, who was a star of Roger Corman movies and was really your biggest client in the kind of second frame of your uh, your prostitution career. Yeah. <laughs> Beach, for me, uh, is personifies an incredible part of the Hollywood story. He's a, he was a young, good-looking guy who came here from Georgia to get into movies, but he didn't really hit it. Instead, he's uh, the star uh, in Roger Corman movies, which are you know, an incredible genre of no-budget films. Then he strikes it rich, flipping houses in Laurel Canyon. And a lot of those houses he bought in Laurel Canyon were three, four, five, and six thousand dollars. That's wow. unbelievable. Believe me, after World War II, everything you could get below ten thousand dollars in high. He bought one of the houses he bought that he left to me. He paid four thousand dollars for it. I looked at it and said it's only worth a thousand, but he yeah. paid four thousand. Wow. And I sold it for six hundred thousand. The same wow. house, the same, the same house, exactly the way it was before. Mm. So fortunes were found in many ways in Hollywood, and you could come here intending to do one thing and end up doing quite another. Right. Uh, which I think is part of the story that never gets told about the town, uh, and uh, it came out in all of these great tales of the city that you that you recount. And another great element of the film is is just being at home with you and Lois. We were saying before you came how how um, enamored we were by <laughs> Lois, your wife. Yeah, um, she's In a cool uh, way. yeah, she's yeah. she's a star. We get to see her perform. Yeah, we were saying we'd love to see her perform live um, here in town. I do have to say, by the way. I was very upset every time I saw you on those ladders. Yeah. I wanted you off those ladders. Yeah. yeah. The, as <laughs> well, your, Lois. Fe- your feet don't work as easy as they used to, you know. But still, even if they did, no, <laughs> that was precarious. Yeah. I wouldn't be climbing up on that roof to clean yeah. up the gutters. Yeah, there was, a, there was a, a vine that was going running from way down below, and I was pulling that vine off. On yeah. The... No more. No more ladders. That, that, no more was, ladders that was a little house that Beach left to me up there in Laurel Canyon. Oh, that's right. What was your relationship like with Beach? Beach was a good friend. I met him way back when he came into gas station, and we were good friends for years. And what happened was he owned about 14 houses in Laurel Canyon, and every house in Laurel Canyon is on a hill, right? The moment we'd buy a house, I'd go in, shovel all the dirt out from underneath, throw it over the side of the hill, every bit over the side of the hill, bootleg a unit in there. I'd bootleg another unit. I'd have a three-unit place on one-unit house. So he had three rentals, on each, and I did that to about 10 houses of his. Did you consider Beach to be um, a boyfriend, a lover? What was yeah. your uh, perspective? Beach, what I, well, I don't know what he considered, but he was a good friend and always nice to me. And as I said, 
making three units out of each house helped him a lot, too. Sure. You know, three rentals rather than one. Sure. <laughs> you know, what, what the movie nails really well, also with the story of Clark Gable and Randolph Scott, is, is this idea of relationships between men that are not— I mean, clearly now we have a name for them, but at the time we didn't or we were afraid of the name that we would put to it or whatever. I feel like Clark— Gable and Randolph Scott lived together and slept together, but probably didn't think anything of it. You know, oh, yeah. because they were uh, Cary Grant and Randolph. I'm sorry, Scott. Yeah, 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 Cary Grant. Yeah, Cary Grant, right? Right. right. Um, they lived together, together as lovers for about 13 years. Right. But would they have called themselves that? Not really. Right. Uh, they might. Uh, they were close enough and together enough. They would. Okay. But I take your point. Um, Gay, uh, as a term, doesn't really come into full use until maybe the 50s or 60s. Yeah. Maybe even a little later. Uh, There's a clip in the film, which is Cary Grant in the film Bringing Up Baby, and it's one of the most famous moments of film comedy. He's wearing a woman's nightgown with a marabou collar, and he says, someone says, why are you wearing those clothes? And he says, because I just went gay all of a sudden. This is thought to be one of the first uses of the word gay, which meant happy, very common word, uh, to mean something other than that. But I think that's part of your point, which is that people didn't give it a label uh, at the time, men might have lived together, but they didn't uh, view themselves uh, siloed as homosexual men, right. perhaps. Well, I remember him telling me when he came over from England, his Archie Leash, and living in New York, not having a dime, would date older women to go to dinner or parties with him as their to be with him, you know. This yeah. is Cary Grant. And, and, yeah, and, and get 20 bucks for it. <laughs> and then along came... Uh, What's your McCall from Australia? Ori Kelly. Ori oh, Kelly. Yeah, yeah. Ori Kelly was a, a and costume they, designer. And they, right. they live together there. Yeah, or, Ori Kelly has three Oscars, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, they lived together, came out here, lived together, and he thought if he wanted to be an actor, he'd better get away from Ori. And that's when he and Randolph Scott moved in together. Right. And. Um, for you, Scotty, in your own life, I mean, you're, you're in the film. You talk about um, a lot of experiences with men. You're, of course, married to a woman now, and and also have been previously. So, right. How do you identify? Uh, doing what's ever necessary to do at the time to move on. <laughs> so you're every I. A lot of people in my presence have asked you, including at a movie theater the other day, there was a woman insistently during a Q&A asking, well, are you gay or what? Like, she really wanted an answer. Yeah. It was almost like a trial. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what, are, yeah, what, I don't mean to answer, to ask you I again. said, what do you think? She said, well, I'm asking you. Yeah. And I said, well, you've got to, you must think for yourself and you have an idea or you wouldn't be asking me. So whatever you think is probably true. Uh-huh. I mean... <laughs> I don't think anyone could say it better than that, frankly. Truly. <laughs> I rest my case. Truly. <laughs> but in, in those in those sexual encounters with people, did did you feel did you feel emotion? Uh, were you ever like caught up in the moment and like kinda into somebody? Well, uh, only because that person is a person was such a nice person. Do you get what I mean? I do, yeah. And and when people when you know someone and they're really nice and you like them and they like you you haven't taken 
into consideration, you're not going to like them because they're gay. Right. And that would have nothing to do with it at all. Right. You like them as a person. And there's an interesting moment, Phil, when um, you're when uh, Lois is there, we're talking about your history, and and you you say you know that you you never really shared all of this with her because it didn't really matter to you. But Lois says, but but it might have mattered to me. Yeah, that's right. I remember saying you're, yeah. you're you're on the ball. I remember saying that it might have mattered to her. And so, what's her reaction to the film then? Um, actually. She didn't see it yet, no, only really? because she's in Texas with her daughter, and she's all of a sudden has arthritis very bad and is kind of crippled up and can't go out, so she didn't see it yet. She'd probably see it. It'll go, it'll go to, what's the name of down Not she's Dallas? In, but, she's in Houston. Yeah, in Houston. Yeah, we'll be in Houston. And, and she'll probably see it when it goes there then. Okay. I would like to be a fly on the wall for that. That's right. <laughs> I'd that. like to get her yeah. review. Yeah. yeah. Well, she still I, hasn't I, read I, your book. I right? think yeah. she hasn't read the book. No, no. She said she didn't know me then, so she didn't read the book. Okay. <laughs> what do you predict her reaction is going to be? Uh, she may never read it, you know. So, uh, and if she does, oh, to the movie, there's got to be a little reaction. Sure. So, uh, but how about for the film? Hmm? Do you think she'll have a bad reaction to the movie? Not really, because I think she's very good in it. She is good. And I like when it. she sings My Buddy at the end. Oh, yeah. my God. That's so Spoiler pretty. alert. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so beautiful. It's, it's a short song, but it's a very nice song. Right. It is. My Buddy. Your Buddy Misses You. Oh. Um, is it, Matt, what is, uh, what is your personal situation right now? Are you, are you with somebody? Oh, this show does that? Oh, yeah. That was great. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, I'm looking. Okay. Um, yeah, hello, everyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm single. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the one thing about making a movie about Scotty Bowers is he was juggling about 20 serious relationships at a time. And uh, every permutation of, of sexual sexuality basically you know there's like a bisexual side to him there's a gay side there's a straight side there's a you name it uh there was always a wife there was always a lover female lover or two then there was a guy who really was usually attached to you but not just one usually one for every night of the week yeah uh so i asked you frequently because we had lunch before we shot every day uh, usually at the Chateau Marmont I would say how did you juggle all this I can't even keep one relationship on the rails and you had 20 to 25 people who had a serious piece of you um, what, what is your secret to success for that well your secret to success is keep them separated see them from time to time mm-hmm. and uh, and don't forget, you have night people, day people. A lot of people don't work, so you can go there at 2 and 3 in the morning perfectly all right. Uh-huh. So I had them all arranged, so boom, boom, boom. Then my late night wouldn't be 2, 3 in the morning, stay all night, and then get up and start over again. Also, <laughs> if you can live in a time before cell phones, that helps probably. That's true. Yeah, right? um, like that's where right. people can be kind of no, unreachable. no way they can run you down if, even if right. you're right next to them, next right. door. Good point. Right. You've, uh, one of your adages that I liked was the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. Basically, that would be the way it would be. You had several right hands and several left hands. Right, exactly. I agree with you about cell phones, but on the other hand, Scotty would kill on Grinder. Oh, right no question. I mean, <laughs> I showed him Grinder, 
And uh, he looked at it and took it in, and then he said to me, I was the grinder. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly. You were the app before there was was an app. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You knew, you knew how to connect the world. So how do you, how do you meet people? How do I meet people? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I'm not a gay bar type. I'm not, he often says, I've learned so much from Scotty. Uh, He talks about how some people didn't cruise. Some people didn't go to gay bars. And I saw a lot of myself in those descriptions. Uh, I'm not, I don't think – we went to the Stonewall Bar in New York for the premiere. It was the first time I'd ever been in there yeah. actually. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm – I'm, yeah, I'll try it all. I'm like – I'll try the app. I'll try the swiping. Um, sometimes the – you know what's uh, – since you've asked what I find really interesting, I, I moved from New York to Los Angeles a few years ago, even though I'm an L.A. native. And um, – I find that people have you over to their house a lot more here, and you're kind of like sitting at a dinner table at a barbecue. And it was, L.A. has been much better for meeting people that way than New York. I think New York's very clicky and siloed, and people go away on the weekends, and they're in their kind of little Fire Island group or their East mm-hmm. Hampton group and yeah. their upstate group. And I, I wasn't didn't go in for that a lot. So I found coming back to my hometown um, and uh, being in the arts – uh, and being circulating in in these artistic communities has been uh, really nice, and uh, so I've met a lot of nice people that way. Sure, since you asked, yeah, <laughs> Scotty, I think that you need to set him up. Yeah, I think you may need to. That's right. Yeah, well, we never got around time. to that. Yeah, <laughs> do you still have your finger on the pulse? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he says, "I see the wheels <laughs> turning sweet. sometimes." We'll go to Whole Foods. And hang out at the the snack tables at Whole Foods, and I see him kind of scanning the uh, the uh, checkout stands and kind of putting people together in his head. I, I can tell when you're on to something. <laughs> when I'm yeah, when you got a talent, man. Yeah, yeah. You can't it. hide your light under a bushel. You gotta let it. You gotta <laughs> let it shine. Uh, when uh, so you grew up here? Yes. Were you at what point did you come out? Brett Easton Ellis asked me that, I think, the other day, too. There's a pattern here. Um, I never really came out. I was, I, Brett and I had the same type of story. We, were, we felt like, eh, never really in, never out. <laughs> um, the whole drama of, of making a, a proclamation of coming out just didn't seem very me. So I never really pretended to be someone I wasn't. Um, so I've never made the announcement. I gave that in an interview to Out Magazine a few years ago. And um, I think the world's coming around to that a little bit now. I'm, I'm curious to see that. Uh, some some younger guys I've dated, actually, I've asked them about, well, when did you come out? And it's like, oh, it doesn't really occur to me. Right. Or, or they say something like, oh, when I was four. Sure, <laughs> sure. No, but very few people can name a time and a date, meaning... At 12 o'clock noon on December the 12th. Oh, I, you know, I think you missed that, though. In the 90s and the, the early 80s, yeah. uh, there was a, that was a big deal. It was like I, your coming out story yeah, sure. yeah. and all that. I've been asked, what's your coming out story? And I never really had one. And I think there was a time when you would be a little shamed 
for not having like a dramatic coming out moment. And I think those that's going. I like the kind of uh, there's a more there's a sense even in the era of identity politics, which are is identified with millennials and this this massive millennial generation that's nipping at everyone's heels. Um, there's a sexual fluidity in the culture among younger people that I'm observing that I find really refreshing and very Scotty-like, yes, actually. Yes, yes. Yes. And I, that is sort of like a, a hidden message in the movie that I like when people pick up on. I think you were a visionary. You were so ahead of your time. You were doing this at a time when you would be made fun of for being a queer or a faggot or whatever if anyone found out. And worse than that, I mean, your parents could send you away to lock you up in a mental institution. I mean, anything bad could happen to you. And you were just shrugging it off. I yeah. think that's incredible. And I, th- I noticed that a little in the culture now. I wish, I always wish I could be more like him in, his, uh, in, in every respect. But uh, that's yeah. one thing I really admired about you. I think back then you could get away with it because nobody was thinking about it. Good point. And now you can get away with it because nobody cares. Or, or, or fewer people care. Right. Yeah, than, I than love what you just said, though. I, I think the the first thing you said is very important, is that the love that dare not speak its name. I mean, uh-huh. the press would not print the word gay or homosexual. I mean, it was so abominable that the family newspaper just wouldn't write about it. Right. So you kind of had a cover story or a cover and then you lived your life, and people didn't read you read it. So you, I, I think I find this still when I go to the South in this country. There's always like, oh, well, this is my uncle and his friend who is a florist. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and they're wearing pink, you know, pink Talbot sport coats and things yeah. like that and fedoras. And you're... <laughs> And they have wonderful taste and, and beautiful manners and talk about Judy Garland all throughout dinner. And everyone is just sort of yeah. like, yeah. I just wonder why Uncle Charlie never married. Uh-huh. <laughs> it still exists in pockets. I, oh, I was in uh, Montreal with my boyfriend, Michael, um, is from a, a very Italian uh, immigrant family in Montreal. And we were with his grandmother, who speaks no English, who's in her, in her 90s. And... Um, is asking him over and over as I'm sitting next to him. Yeah. When are you going to meet a girl? When are you going to meet a girl? And yeah. he's just like, yeah, they never, I don't they know, never no, let no. up on that. Sometimes, they, but then, but then in a way, subconsciously, she does because then sometimes she looks at me and she looks at him and she says, "It's just important. You just have to love each other. It's just as long as, as long as you two love each other. That's all that matters." So she understands in a strange way, but doesn't have the language for it right. culturally. Literally, doesn't have language for it. Anyway. Um, there's another moment that uh, is so beautiful in the film, which is when Scotty, you're walking through West Hollywood, what is our our boys town, yeah. which is just you know gay bars and they're all packed and they're all you know spilling out onto the street. And I think this is right after Prop Eight was voted down. Yeah, and, that night. And so, I, and I just would love to hear what was going through your mind taking that in and what goes through your mind when you see what gay culture and queer culture looks like now? Well, uh, I think it should be whatever they make it at the time and whatever they, whatever they do is perfect. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, don't put it down, don't build it up. Just let it ride. Just let it it float by. We had that West Hollywood mayor give me the key to the city there. Yeah. Oh, you're the toast of the town. Yeah, which was very nice of him. Yeah. And he was a very nice guy and spoke very nicely, didn't he? 
Yeah, he said you put the wood in Hollywood. <laughs> put the wood <laughs> on. That was in the proclamation. Yeah. But you've got to love the city of West Hollywood. <laughs> You're right. That. You and Stormy Daniels yeah. that's right. got the key. And by the way, it was Tell highly them. overdue. You, I mean, you, you know, uh, oddly enough, the first gay bars were not in West Hollywood. The first big gay bar was on the corner of La Brea and Melrose. Huge place. That was the number one, after World War II, the number one big gay bar, other than the ones that were up on Hollywood Boulevard. There what, what was it called? I was trying to think what it was called. Hmm. It's where I think Lulu's is now or something. Um, or something. Or, it was no two, door, two doors east of La Brea on the north side of Melrose. Big one. And the number one one. Uh-huh. And a block west of there was a big bathhouse that went night and day. Wow. What and, was that called? I'll forget what that was that called. Two-story math house. If you go in it, you walk along the hallway, someone grabs you and pulls you in. Boom, you're gone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a time. Yeah. What a time. Well, well there were bathhouses all over town, right? There were quite that? a few of them, but there was a big one, right? a big two-story. There was a big one at the beach down there. I mean. Well, you said there was one in Venice, and when it would get raided, people would jump out the second-story well, yeah, windows. Yeah, jump out in the sand because it was a two-story place. <laughs> uh-huh. In the second floor, they'd all jump out onto the sand with a little softer, you know, like 50 or 60 of them <laughs> in the afternoon. <laughs> There's something – I interviewed – one of the things I loved about this project is I interviewed, oh, I don't know, like 25 guys in their 80s and 90s uh-huh. who were survivors of this period. I mean, this is really amazing. The first thing I asked him was, was anyone around from the gas station? And I was sure the answer would be no, but the answer was not no. And we went to visit quite a few of them. And to hear about uh, life then in the city and to get a picture through – uh, their eyes of what it was like to live in the sexual uh, demi-monde of Los Angeles at the time was really, really interesting. I mean, first of all, it's a totally lost and erased world because gay culture had to cover its tracks. L.A. also throws its history in the wastebasket. You know, there's no recorded history here, it seems. It's mm-hmm. such a cavalier city about that, which is one of its charms in a certain way. Uh, but it's also sad. And then to have uh, – I felt like a bit of an archaeologist piecing together this uh, gay city that Scotty was sort of the mayor of. And uh, a lot of these guys, some of them were hustlers from the gas station. Some were clients. Uh, gave amazing insights into these places. A guy named Don Cook who uh, passed away recently. But he had a clothing store, the first gay business on Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. It was called Amen. Amen. That's before my time. He had a mail order business. He had a not only a store. He had across the street on the corner where the bank is now. He owned that, and he had a complete mail order business. Uh, catalog where people would buy things all over the country. Big uh-huh. mail order business. Okay, do yourself a favor, listeners. Google Amen West Hollywood and the catalogs come up. Uh-huh. It's like a proto-international mail kind we of talk like. We international mail a lot. Oh, right. Well, this yeah. was the Ur international mail. And the catalogs are really incredible. So, uh, And they invented a thong that had a pocket in it for a foam rubber insert to uh, kind of uh, accentuate the positive, if you, were, <laughs> if you will. Uh, then, so Don Cook, if we have a minute, this was incredible. So Don Cook was a very wealthy guy. We went to interview him. Very charming 
a beautifully turned out gentleman with a, a valet and a handsome younger boyfriend living in the Wilshire Corridor. Oh, he told dream. me that uh, there was a restaurant on Crescent Heights and Sunset, uh, where the nightclub is now on the uh, northwest corner, that was called Frascati. And Frascati was a kind of quasi-gay restaurant. Rock Hudson used to hang out there a lot. There was a maitre d' at Frascati who was Scotty's main competitor. His name was Ernst, and he was a uh, maitre d' pimp. Hmm. So you knew if you were at Frascati, if you wanted to meet someone, Ernst would, might be able to find you a boy there. So one, when Fr- one day Frascati closed its doors, and Ernst went to Don Cook, the owner of Amen, and said, will you set me up in another restaurant? And that is the origin of the uh, legendary bar, The Numbers, uh-huh. oh, yeah. which used to be next to where Greenblatt's Deli is, a few right. doors east of where this right, restaurant right, is. Across the street from Schwab's Drugstore. Yeah. This was ground zero, right? Right. Schwab's was a famous drugstore where everyone would hang out. If you were an actor, you got your calls there on the payphone. Mm-hmm. You'd go, somebody'd call you or the agent or something, and you'd be sitting in there or hanging around there, and your phone's call, your phone was the payphone on the wall there. Mm. <laughs> when the number is a little later, uh, yeah. Schwab's is kind of like up until well, Schwab's is up until the eighties, I think. But right. its heyday was you know forties, fifties. The numbers was. Have you guys heard of the numbers? Yeah. Yeah. This was but. this rather high end thing where gentlemen would go to meet other gentlemen. And uh, Gore Vidal, we haven't talked about our origin story with the writer Gore Vidal. That's, that's how Scotty and I met, actually, through the legendary um, writer and essayist. Uh, Gore's had a house in the Hollywood Hills, and I remember uh, I was in my 20s when I met him. I was going through his Rolodex one day on the kitchen counter, and it said the numbers, and it had the number to this club. I was like, oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of a hustler bar. Uh-huh. Was that how you would describe it? I would definitely describe it that way, yeah. What was it like to be in there in the numbers? Do well, you- not bad. As long as, you're, as long as you're there, regardless of what, why or what, to be there is good. Oh, okay. <laughs> But you would, it didn't seem like you would have to hang out at a numbers. It seemed like you no, kind of— I, I did not. And yeah, I didn't hang around there city either. city dialed in. I, I knew I'm very familiar with it. People went there and people owned it and everything, but I didn't have time to go there. Sure. You know, not but, at all. But the gas station was numbers. Uh, numbers opened after the gas station right. stopped being a brothel or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Numbers was kind of replaced you, yeah. but you were doing. You should ask him about what he did after the gas station, how he worked the uh, the the prostitution network after that. So, Scotty, what did you do after? <laughs> You're doing a great job. I, mean, I did the same thing no. after, Thank you. only in, in a different place, in a different way. You know, uh-huh. I, in other words, of all the people I knew both ways. Sure. Regardless of where I was, I could still work it, and. Uh, I did everything in my mind, nothing written down. Really? Yeah. I knew, How? I knew you recognize your voice. Right. I knew what type of person you like to see, uh-huh. and that's the type I fixed you up with. In other words, it always amazed people that I fixed everybody up with their type. Yeah. <laughs> Not someone who was just available, but their type. And that's what people say I can't believe. As a matter of fact, I would say at least 10 people, when they got very old, before they died, they would send a letter saying, the nicest and best time of my whole life was you and the gas station on Hollywood Boulevard. And every time I saw someone, it was exactly my type. Wow. Everything. In other words, 
I got to know people, what you what you liked, what you did, whether you had a lot of free time or you were a quick trick. And that's the way I would – don't forget, most people just wanted company, someone to be yeah. with, someone to talk with. They didn't want that quick trick in and out, come and go. But so, you had a lot of satisfied customers. That's right. Yeah, so sure. I always fix people up with their type, and this is what always amazed people, that the, that the people they saw was really their type. And that's why so many people ended up moving in with each other and being together and staying together their whole life so because you, they started off right. Did you just have like premonitions? Did you do you can you meet somebody and read their aura and set them up, well, or is it if, just if I'm with someone for a short period of time and they want to talk to me, I can pick up on their type immediately, uh-huh. what they like, what they like best. And as I said, back in those days, number one was someone to be with, company, right? Not a quick trick in and out. And yet, someone did want a quick trick in and out, come and go, boom, boom. Uh-huh. Now, who else do you know just like that? Uh-huh. That was exactly my type. Now, who else do you know like that? <laughs> yeah. And how would you get your percentage? You mean the people I had? Yeah. Uh, for every one I lost, I gained two or three. Say, for instance, I fixed you up with someone, mm-hmm. and you really liked them. Yeah. But you're busy. You don't have time to be with them. So rather than just dump them, you really liked them, so you turned them over to me. Uh-huh. So all of my good tricks came through people who really liked people. Do you get what I mean? I think and I, I always do. ended up with more than I lost. Yeah. But you were asking about uh, taking a cut of right. the fee. Well, that's that's something that you N- should talk about. Never, ever took a cut from anyone. Really? If I fixed you up with a $20 trick and you came back and said, he really liked me, gave me 100 I said, great, you deserve it. I want to give you something. No, I'm not taking anything. Yeah. I never took a dime from anyone. So how did you live? I, did, I was tricking myself. Uh-huh. Okay. I was doing very well myself. I was always tricking. I could turn more tricks than anyone. Unbelievable. And when did you retire from well, from tricks? I never really retired until just about recently here. <laughs> <laughs> now, how was a movie star? Right, <laughs> right. And so, how was that then compatible with your life with uh, with Lois? Uh, well, uh, she does take a little time uh, of your time. That's true. Yeah. But I still created time to do things too. You sure. Know? Sure. Okay. But so you were f- in full swing of tricking while yeah. you were married to Lois, right? I've asked you this, but it's implied in the movie, but it's, you're never really asked point blank in yeah. the movie. Like, yeah. What What would you tell her when you didn't show up at night and you were out doing well, a trick? Well, if you're if you're what they call a busy person, you're always busy anyhow. It's not too noticeable to be busy then. Right. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. You don't all of a sudden do it. You don't all of a sudden sit around and say, "Oh, now I got to go." You're busy all the time, so it's just part of being busy. Your busyness is also a big recurring thing in right. the film. That it just years of your life, you were working seven days a week, late nights, and how did you how how did you get the endurance? Just by keep going, and I know what you mean. Uh, you miss a lot of sleep, but uh, yeah. I never turned anything down, and so I just kept going. How many tricks could you do a day? Well, you can do, uh, you can successfully do about four good tricks a day. Now, but two bad tricks? I mean, there was like, you said you didn't always have to go to completion, as it well, were. Very often, you, very often, you don't. The other one does, but you don't have to. You 
didn't quite do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which works out. Yeah, sure. especially if you're doing four times a day. Yeah. <laughs> you got to save a little something for yourself. <laughs> My God, guys, thank you so much for coming in. I know you guys are like you have a very busy schedule yes. promoting this movie, which everyone must see. By the way, it's in theaters now. Yes. Scotty and the Secret History of Hollywood. You guys, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you so much. You're, you're, and I, I request that you release this uh, this unseen footage. Oh. I mean, maybe a sequel? Well, sure. we just got the uh, DVD extra order. Oh. So oh, really? we need to figure out what's going in. This. All of it. Oh, yeah. wow. That would be uh, 300 hours. Great. Okay. We got, we'll make We're the time. You're ready? We'll make the time. Binge watching. We'll yeah. Make the time. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thank, Thank you so much. much.